Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. We have made great advances in the field of critical care medicine. Without doubt, we have improved our ability to care for the sickest patients. To support patients who are critically ill with multi-organ failure is something we continue to improve at. Yet, we have much to learn in the journey survivors of the ICU have ahead of them as they leave the ICU and try to heal and return to their families and society. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss outcomes after critical illness. Our guest is Dr. Margaret Herridge, professor of medicine and senior scientist in critical care and respiratory medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Herridge is also director of critical care research, director of the Recover program, and clinical director of the Grace Recover program for chronic critical illness at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. It is a true honor to have her on the podcast to discuss such an important topic for our practices. Margaret, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you so much, Sergio. It's a pleasure to be here. As we were discussing before we started recording, uh, ICUs all over North America and the world probably are very focused on helping patients survive from critical illness. And often when somebody leaves after a couple of weeks, the ICU, there seems to be this sense of, of, of victory and triumph. And what we're learning these days is that there's still a very long road ahead of our patients and there's a lot of challenges, and probably there's a lot that we can do and a lot that we have to learn to make that journey a, a better one for our patients. So I felt this was an extremely important topic, and I'm so happy that uh, you, with all your expertise, are willing to share that with our, with our audience. Margaret, maybe we could start with a little yeah. bit of a historical perspective. I know this, a lot of our field kind of starts with ARDS, uh, the original description, mm-hmm. And uh, slowly, it seems that over decades, we evolved our understanding of what it really means to be an ICU survivor. Yeah, I mean, that's right, Sergio. I think that um, uh, that's right. I I think there were studies before ARDS um, where people were beginning to think a little bit about this. But I think that was really the um, genesis of a lot of the um, outcomes work. And it's interesting that, um, you know, the outcomes work really began as being very single system focused, uh, worrying about, or at least reflecting on what the pulmonary function outcomes could look like and really progressing then to more generic uh, health related quality of life um, outcomes. And then really in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, really drilling down on different domains of disability Um, and you know the seminal papers there uh, that we mentioned in our review and I like to mention the names of people because we have a lot of important people who've contributed very seminal observations so the neurocognitive aspect of things really contributed by Mona Hopkins and her group and uh, the PTSD challenges really um, uh, brought to um, the community through the work of Gustav Schelling and others and gradually more and more people contributing um, 
very important observations and uh, really with the culmination of understanding that there are really multi-dimensional uh, morbidities and ever-growing morbidity uh, counts really as we become more aware of this and more deliberately catalog all of the uh, challenges that patients have and their families have. And um, I think one thing that Ellie and I were trying to emphasize in our review as well is that it's just really bringing children in and of course the healthcare team that uh, an episode of critical illness really is the starting point for a cascade of many events for lots and lots of people involved. And there's a really uh, durable impact of this that may extend for years or decades after these events. Um, so yeah, we have a, we've done a lot of great work. There's no question our specialty's really done a lot of great work, but I think this may be one of the really important challenges in the next uh, de next uh, decades to come to really understand um, how we can mitigate this in real time in the unit and uh, what might be modifiable or non-modifiable morbidities um, afterwards and uh, how to really care for patients and families and children longitudinally, but frankly, also our healthcare team. And I think the post-COVID observations have really heightened the urgency of um, you know, many of these uh, uh, issues. And you mentioned uh, challenges and you mentioned COVID. And I think that none of our listeners obviously is alien to what 2020, 2021, and part of 22 meant for critical care all over the world. I mean, we talked a lot about COVID, but an emerging uh, concern and challenge is long COVID, which may be something different or maybe just part of the same discussion we're having. I want to hear your, your opinion, but could you just mention what that really means? I, I, I guess one way of thinking about it is that we have the largest cohort of critical illness survivors at one time worldwide, and now we got to figure mm -hmm. out what to do with them, right? Yeah, no question. I mean, <clears throat> we really kind of deliberately landed on this statement because um, I, I think it, it, it takes the outcomes work, which has really been sort of percolating in the literature for decades, um, to another level um, and to really the level of a, a public health, public policy urgency, emergency. I might even use the word emergency because there are just so many people um, affected and, you know, the cascade of events that we just sort of chatted about, about the patients and families and, and uh, children. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it's a, it's a long discussion about um what long covid really means you know um because i think long covid looks very different across this spectrum of severity of illness and we're looking at that a bit in our canadian national study can cove that i'm leading with my colleague here in canada angela dr angela chun so angela and i talk about this a lot and lots of people in our community talk about this a lot i think the long covid in the icu folks is different um, I think there's an enormous overlap with um, what we already know in the post-ICU outcomes literature. 
um, and this sort of overlapping construct of post-ARDS, post-sepsis, post-chronic critical illness, and um, the post-intensive care syndrome um, uh, nomenclature uh, put forward by um, Dale uh, Needham um, and others. But, um, you know, I, I think there definitely is a unique contribution from COVID as well. And I think it's going to take a while to really sort that out. I mean, there is a there is a very specific brain injury with COVID and renal injury and pulmonary injury that cardiac injury, you know, sort of multi-system injuries related to the ACE2 receptor sort of ubiquitous expression that I think is a bit different. But I think we are seeing um, so much overlap that it may be how we manage the morbidities um, in the longer term may look pretty similar to what we're trying to put together for post um, ICU patients and families. And that in turn probably looks a lot like these historic multidisciplinary interprofessional models of rehab that most of us who do this work have adapted or adopted that really began in the kind of pulmonary rehab, cardiac rehab literature. So just to kind of reference that history too, because it's really what people need and longitudinal care, a sense of connectedness, um, you know, whether that's through a navigator role, a nursing or other navigator role, but just continuity and education and advocacy. Um, uh, you know, sort of as basic principles for uh, trying to address not only what long COVID will look like, but just, you know, sort of the more generic construct of post-critical uh, illness outcomes. Absolutely. And I think that, as you mentioned, there might be some specific, uh, unique aspects. Um, but today we're going to focus on what's common to surviving critical illness and and the journey post that. So maybe we could start uh, or we could continue by diving into a little bit of patient outcomes after critical illness, specifically thinking of three buckets of physical sequela, cognitive impairment, and mood and psychological impact. I think that's a, a good construct that we can use as a framework mm -hmm. today. And that why don't we start with some physical sequela that are common to many patients who survive the ICU that a lot of intensivists might not be thinking of as their patients leave the ICU? Yeah, sure, Sergio. I think, um, you know, uh, I would always sort of put at the top of the list um, ICU-acquired weakness, um, and with that, um, acquired or exacerbated frailty. So for your listeners who are maybe less um, uh, familiar with ICU-acquired weakness, um, this is a construct that's really emerged a lot in the last uh, 15 to 20 years. But there are historic reports of this dating back to the early 80s. Um, and actually, by um, some Canadian colleagues uh, of mine, um, I'm really noticing a flaccid quadriparesis in the ICU. So what is this? It really is an injury to the muscle and to the nerve. And it's not just from immobility. I think it's an important clarification here that there is a certain degree of muscle injury that relates to mechanical unloading through immobility because we have sedating, we're sedating, we're paralyzing our patients. 
But this, these are discrete injuries to the muscle, um, uh, characterized as a myosin depletion myopathy, um, and an injury to the uh, nerve, characterized as an axonopathy. And um, these can occur separately, um, uh, very commonly occur together. And um, they really uh, create an enormous burden of disability. And we know that ICU-acquired weakness um, increases time on the ventilator because it affects the diaphragm. And the diaphragm may be um, specifically um, vulnerable to these sorts of injuries because the diaphragm uh, teleologically is a muscle that we were, it was never programmed to rest, right? It's our only muscle that never rests. We use it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, you know, and, and all many weeks a year. So the uh, ICU acquired weakness will um, uh, prolong mechanical ventilation. So ventilator time, ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay. Um, it's associated with um, an increase in um, ICU mortality, hospital mortality, one-year mortality, um, and maybe uh, may result in durable uh, disability for five to eight to more years um, and uh, may not be wholly reversible. So it's quite a devastating complication. And I think there is an assumption that with rehab, this will all get better. And I think it's very important for me to clarify that with your listeners that certainly rehabilitation and early mobility um, can help. However, there can be a point of no return for every patient after they've been in the unit for weeks or months. Um, because, and this is some nice work from uh, Samir Jaber and others, over time, the sarcomeres of the muscle may become fixed and you actually will have an irreversible um, uh, injury to the muscle and the contractile force will be lost. Um, muscles may not necessarily regenerate or don't regenerate with the same degree of muscle bulk or contractile force. Um, this is also work published by um, Jane Bad and Claudia DeSantos who work here at the University of Toronto um, uh, in their own group on collaboratively with our recover group. And there are lots of muscle groups around the world. Um, there's a large muscle group in the UK. Um, this is the, <clears throat> pardon me, the group um, um, who uh, published the JAMA paper led by uh, Zudin uh, Puthachiri, um, you know, uh, Nick Hart, Steve Herridge, um, and uh, others, uh, which showed this sort of relentless muscle loss um, during the first week of ICU. They were looking at quadriceps muscle. And uh, Sandy Levine in his uh, New England Journal paper in 2008, looking at the injury to the diaphragm. So I'm just referencing some and naming some individuals who've made some seminal observations here. And just to highlight, this can be a devastating um, long-term and sometimes irreversible disability. And it is linked to age. It's linked to ICU length of stay. It's linked to severity of illness. And there's a beautiful review on ICU Hard weakness um, led by um, uh, led by just Jesse Hall and uh, JP Cress um, 
in the New England Journal. And so I, I refer your um, listeners to that excellent review. Um, and we'll definitely link uh, that in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Really drills down on that 100%. And and frailty too, you know, um, as sort of a slightly different construct, but frailty as something that's a very important negative prognosticator for outcomes in people who come to the ICU with this, um, and often it's exacerbated or acquired in the ICU, also an independent risk factor for all of these negative um, long-term outcomes that I've I've uh, mentioned with ICU acquired weakness. Absolutely. So that's a, a good place to start. Um, did it, you want me to focus on some other things or yeah go ahead no and i was going to say that that with uh, icu acquired um, um weakness it's almost like the tip yeah. of the iceberg right we started talking about this earlier but then we started mm. adding more and more layers not only of understanding mm. of that specific topic but other problems that our icu survivors develop a uh, post uh, post the icu stay are there any others that you want to mention in the physical um consequences that might be of, of, of relevance before we dive into the cognitive area? Yeah, for sure. I, I Again, you know, many people have published uh, on these, so your readers can um, look at, at those for sure. And um, we, we, we articulated a few of these in our sort of original sort of one-year ARDS outcomes paper, actually, shockingly, 20 years ago um, now. But Things I like to highlight because they sometimes um, don't get quite as much attention. So uh, with with immobility, though, there's a lot of morbidity from uh, uh, contractures. In particular, frozen shoulders are very morbid. Um, some patients can develop uh, heterotopic ossification, which is sort of an extra articular bony deposition, again, leading to a decrease in uh, joint movement and disability. Um, a lot of patients will have um, uh, peripheral neuropathies, again, related to uh, nerve injury, but these can be pretty devastating um, and also lead to gait disturbances and um, uh, disability. Some things that I really might highlight that often don't get to prime time are uh, pressure injuries which I think many of us in ICU might think just get better over time. Um, these can be extremely morbid and um, can take a year or longer to heal, um, especially because they're often colonized with really pernicious uh, multi multiply drug-resistant organisms. Um, and actually, um, the... Uh, severity of pressure injuries and their duration, I mean, they can, they are associated with one-year mortality. And this is a very seminal observation in the Decubitus paper that was published uh, recently. The other thing I might like to emphasize, in addition to pressure injuries that people don't talk about enough, I think, is um, <clears throat> oral health. I mean, I, I've always been struck in our follow-up over the years by how much tooth loss and dental morbidity our patients have. And they don't talk about it. Um, and maybe people think this is just normal. Um, I think we can do a lot, a much better job with oral hygiene, toothbrushing. Um, there's enormous dental loss and complex gingival disease, need for root canals. And depending on what country you live in and your own you know, income issues, this is, can be an extraordinary burden and extremely expensive. 
and it really can go on for years as well. Um, and I think it would be good to uh, really highlight this. Um, there's also vocal cord injury. I would just make the comment in our COVID cohort, and I think this may be due to proning. I've never seen so many tracheal injuries. We have a lot of people with tracheal stenosis, which has been documented by our group and other groups historically. But um, I think uh, this may be a new and emerging, you know, getting back to my comment that we have this ever-increasing list of things to keep an eye on, um, may be related to a lot of recurrent and chronic proning that we may be creating airway injuries that manifest, you know, months later as a tracheal stenosis and may go undiagnosed. So a long list of a lot of things, and, and we tried to really detail and enumerate these, uh, Ellie and I did in our paper. So I might refer to um, your listeners um, uh, to that as well for a more complete list. Absolutely. And, and I think that what you mentioned about the, the tracheal injury is very interesting because it also makes me think immediately, Margaret, are there unique aspects of COVID as a disease or are there particular aspects of how we care for those patients that actually yeah. now are um, causing an increase in us diagnosing certain problems? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean... I, you know, I, I, for sure, I don't know. No, it's a question, I a rhetorical question, I guess. I was that's, a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, like a hundred percent. Yeah. And I think I might just quickly say that the de-adoption of so many of our great principles that we've spent so many or, or standards of care that we spent so much time studying, um, I think we really need to have a hard and honest look at, at what the, the ramifications of those were for our patients, for sure, and families. Absolutely. So the other bucket we mentioned yeah. is a cognitive impairment. And I, my understanding is that this is something that we have learned uh, more recently, or at least after um, we were understanding about the the. ICU-acquired weakness, but it might mm -hmm. have devastating effects on our patients, and uh, especially if we don't talk to them about it, they don't realize that it's going on or that they can actually talk about it uh, or try to seek help for, for it. Could you talk us a little bit about this um, area? Yeah, <clears throat> for sure. Well, at the beginning, I um, mentioned uh, Mona Hopkins, who's really um, a very important uh, figure in all of this, and really put this whole issue on the map. So I really would want to publicly acknowledge Mona and her important work. She's the leader in this and everyone has followed. Um, she was the one who in 1999 published a blue journal paper um, on uh, cognitive outcomes in ARDS patients and really helped us to understand that these patients um, at one year and now it's clear for many years will have problems with um, memory concentration processing speed um, and um, have a lot of challenges with um, uh, executive function really um, uh, the ability to multitask and that's uh, these can be really very devastating uh, complications I think this is one of the <clears throat> Uh, very invisible morbidities initially 
because in the ICU, you know, everyone is very excited that a patient can obey commands. And I mean, while that can be very reassuring in the short term, it's really not going to disclose any of these higher cognitive or more integrative um, uh, processes that really may be uh, very compromised in our uh, post-ICU patients. And uh, in Mona's experience, and she's written a lot about this, and in our own experience and seeing ICU patients for a long time, often these um, cognitive uh, problems, these cognitive sequelae don't really become evident until people try to resume their life again. And uh, most usually try to go back to work and find that it is hard to, you know, their memory is not the same. It's hard to concentrate, hard to focus. Um, they process at a more slower, you know, at a, they process more slowly. Um, and they really are having problems, um, you know, managing multiple tasks. And uh, many of us uh, have jobs that require very, very, um, intact and high-level executive functioning. I would say as an intensivist, that's we're really taxed in that way and enorm enormously. And um, <clears throat> this can be an enorm a big barrier to return to work, as I mentioned, um, um, and uh, can be very um, devastating for patients. Um, I think that in my experience, this is just an anecdotal comment, that the higher-functioning patients often um, because they're really working at the limits of their cognition, um, notice even a minor decrement in these abilities. Um, and it can be extraordinarily distressing. And depending on the job, it really will, it really will be a barrier. Um, it's interesting in Mona's initial paper, um, a long time ago now, that uh, the cognitive dysfunction was linked to um, hypoxemia. And... Um, uh, and others now uh, have really uh, helped to uh, create, you know, a, a, a list of risk factors that are also uh, associated with uh, cognitive dysfunction and things like uh, being in deep coma, where we really have um, an injury, not just to the cortex, but probably the white matter and, and a pruning effect. Uh, related to um, a real change in external exposure to external stimuli, um, <clears throat> you know, and all the various sedation and narcotic and anesthetic drugs. Uh, just to your point earlier, Sergio, that we were running continuously for days and in many cases weeks um, in some of our sickest COVID patients and just you know, uh, I mean, uh, meeting all of the high risk factors, the documented risk factors that we know um, are associated with long-term cognitive dysfunction. And a seminal observation from the brain ICU group, this, the Vanderbilt group, um, on that particular New England Journal paper published in 2013, led by Pradek Pandurapandi and Wes Ely, um, you know, so many others, um, so many other uh, leaders, Jim Jacks and others, um, who've, um, uh, Tim Gerard, who've done a lot of important work, you know, showing not just delirium, but duration of delirium is an extremely potent uh, determinant of long-term cognitive dysfunction. And we know in the COVID patients that 
um, they had a lot of very complex delirium. Another reason we needed to um, resort to polypharmacy often um, uh, with sedation and, and narcotics, et cetera, uh, to be able to vent them, to be able to manage them on ECLS and and other things. So, a lot of lots of robust literature that would make you expect, or you know, I mean, foreshadow what we're finding in the post-COVID people that we were doing all the things that we know hurt the brain, and these are the consequences. Absolutely, and 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 I'm always struck when we talk about cognitive impairment by just one case of a, a family friend who was um, elder, yeah. older, but extremely functional, <laughs> recovered from the ICU. Everybody was elated, and it seemed he was fine. Went back to run his business, and six months later, was bankrupt. And uh, mm-hmm. now connecting the dots, obviously there probably was significant functional. Uh, uh, issues that were not recognized were not addressed right and this is not a, i yeah. think an uncommon story unfortunately yeah yeah absolutely and um and i think the other just along the i'm so sorry to hear about your family friend i yeah lots of stories like that that so many of us in the outcomes world have heard in our clinics and indirectly but um I think there's just such a key issue that people should be really counseled not to try to return to work too early um, and to really try to understand where they're at so that we can try to mitigate some of these disastrous consequences. Um, Many people will have some, you know, improvement over time. there's no clear intervention at this moment, although, you know, Jim Jackson's working very hard on this in the brain ICU group in particular in Vanderbilt. But, um, you know, just even just trying to protect patients from themselves, you know, trying to get back to normal, trying to rush back to work, trying to put this horrible life event behind them. I see this a lot and I really try to caution people um, and uh, try to protect them from going back to work too early one because um i don't think it's good for their colleagues to see that maybe they're not functioning at the same level and that creates its own problems at work um, problems with discrimination um or they're trying to take on too much responsibility and and truly are not able to with sometimes disastrous consequences as you've just outlined so I think this is an important role for the follow-up clinic or longitudinal follow-up care um, to an educating primary care physicians um, because these clinics are not disseminated around the world to educate people about how to advise uh, patients and families after this and maybe advocate for disability um, or rationale for being, you know, needing more recovery time. I think if you've never known someone who's been in ICU or you don't understand what it looks like. I think people, when they come home, everyone around them figures they'll be fine in a couple of weeks. And of course, this is never the case. It's more like a year. And um, it's I've spent a lot of time writing letters advocating for disability with insurance companies, disability, you know, disability uh, issues. Uh, and it's it's really tough. People, there's not a lot of understanding about this, and that tr- translates into um, not a lot of work accommodation, unfortunately. 
Absolutely. And and the third bucket I wanted to comment uh, before we move on, which obviously mm-hmm. also is extremely important, is um, the mood disorders and psychological impact or mm-hmm. uh, mental health disorders that are very common uh, in the ICU in general for people who have worked in, in the ICU at COVID, but mm-hmm. also for our patients. Could you just comment some of those aspects, Margaret? Yeah, for sure, Sergio. Um, maybe I'll just, I'll start with the patients and then maybe just comment briefly on the healthcare workers because I I think that's important too. Um, so as I started off by saying that Gustav Schelling in his paper in 1998, I'm just highlighting the authors and the papers because th- these papers are a long time ago. And still I think, Sergio, it may be some of your listeners or certainly many of our colleagues are really unaware of this robust literature that's decades old um, that Ellie and I were really trying to give a historic perspective on just to underlie, underline, like, we know this and we we all should know this. Um, so he really put PTSD on the map and I think people at the time were shocked by it, um, maybe in disbelief, but it's it's a very robust finding as our anxiety as are, um, as is, uh, pardon me, uh, depressive symptoms. We've learned over the years that the depressive symptoms, and many people have published on this, um, <clears throat> many different groups. Um, the Vanderbilt group has, Mona's group, our group uh, in Toronto has, uh, Dale Needham's group at Hopkins has, um, <clears throat> Dimitri Davidow, um Joe Benvenu, who uh, work at the Hopkins Group or have moved other places now, uh, Dimitri has have published a lot on this topic. Uh, Jim Jackson recently too. Um, <clears throat> really prevalent uh, depressive symptoms, um, major episodes of depression. Uh, there's an emerging literature on suicidality. Um, Shannon Fernando, a Canadian colleague in a recent JAMA paper published on suicidality. We know that there are challenges with substance misuse. Um, So these are really big deals. And unfortunately, for a lot of the patients, um, they're ashamed of this. They're ashamed to talk about it. Um, They've had uh, the PTSD has been linked to restraint use in the ICU, getting back to some of your earlier comments, things we can do. We should not be tying people down. Um, There's some suggestion, although it's inconsistent, that polypharmacy and running these continuous sedation infusions or drug infusions may be associated with that, but it's equivocal. Uh, Some studies have shown that. The Brain ICU New England Journal paper did not uh, demonstrate that, at least with cognition. Um, and mood disorders, Um, but these are ways we can mitigate that, but they're devastating. Um, The uh, uh, delusions that patients have as part of delirium in the ICU are very disturbing. Um, Many of us who do follow-up have had patients talk a lot with us once they know and trust us that they have, they are convinced tragically that they've been sexually assaulted in the ICU. So many um, stimuli in the ICU are distorted and misperceived in the context of delirium in a very kind of persecutory way. So the difficult to insert femoral vas cath uh, may be 
construed as sexual assault or the insertion of rectal tubes similarly. Being tied down, absolutely. Um, it's not hard to imagine how people feel they've been, they are being tortured and held in places against their will. Um, <clears throat> so I think we have a lot of work to do in that, and it's always very disturbing and continues to be very disturbing for those of us who do follow up to listen to these stories. They are not one-off stories. They are robust stories. I've been listening to stories like this for decades in our own work here in Toronto. So very important to emphasize that and to think about ways we can improve it. I might just finish by just saying the healthcare workers we know now get really sick. And I think that this kind of, if I can be candid, and it's okay here. Absolutely. You might disagree with me, but I think this kind of hero archetype, the intensivist as the hero archetype, um, only does our profession a disservice. We are people. And uh, after COVID, we all have, you know, our own devastating stories and experiences. Uh, many people have challenged, have been challenged by their own mood disorders, uh, mental health issues. I think it, and we sort of tried to highlight this in the paper too, that it has its own effect on those of us who do this work. And um, we need to look after ourselves and our community as well. And acknowledge, I think, I hope that what we do changes us too. And we need to um, kind of acknowledge that and be honest about how difficult this work is as rewarding as it is and how much, you know, we all love doing it and making a difference. We pay a price for doing it. And I think it's important to be able to talk openly and honestly about that. I couldn't agree more. And I always say that we don't need another hero. We need great teams and a system that works, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, totally agree. And that's what should be, I think, valued, uh, praised, as opposed to somebody who's been on for 48 hours. That is mm -hmm. not really what, what we need, uh, like you said. So th those are all great points and, and, and quite humbling. And I would hope that our listeners um, think about these issues uh, with a lot more compassion and empathy towards our patients as we care for them in, in the ICU. We talked about um, um, a little bit about age and length, um, length of ICU stay as obviously important risk factors. Could you just give us a brief summary uh, in terms of what are some of the risk factors that we know today, modifiable and non-modifiable for all these post-ICU uh, disabilities? Oh. Wow, well, that could be its own podcast, Sergio. But so maybe we um, just hit on the on the most important I mean, ones. Let me just, yeah, yeah, let me just give you I can give you sort of the, the highlights or things that I always try to teach when I'm attending myself and I try to highlight for our 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 group. And um, I think what I always say to people um, when I'm working with the team is it's so important that and I guess we tried to emphasize this, too, that we really do embrace the continuum because everyone had a really important history before they came to the ICU. And the history may be that they were young and entirely healthy, but that's extremely relevant because that person has tons of reserve when they come. And that changes um, how you, I think your attitudes about how, um, how extensive your, um, uh, 
don't want to use maybe extensive, but the sort of extreme levels of care that you may wish to expose that patient to. How about I express it that way? Um, but things that I really think are important to emphasize maybe for the listeners here, um, and this is some very nice work done by Lauren Ferranti and others, you know, the trajectory that someone's on before they come to the ICU is extremely important. And we often don't take a careful enough history because there's a lot of richness there in terms of prognostication. Not just older patients, but patients who are in declining health, patients who have acquired important frailty, patients who've had multiple hospital admissions leading up to kind of a final decompensation and they're in the ICU. Um, you know, patients who um, are very comorbid, you know, they come to you with very limited reserve, whether that's neurocognitive reserve, they're beginning to show early signs of uh, dementia, or, you know, they've got uh, some underlying pulmonary or cardiac or renal disease, um, or, you know, they're, they're bed bound at home, literally or in an institution, the pre-ICU trajectory is extremely key. There's no doubt. Um, I would say the other issue, too, is that people get very upset when you talk about age, that it seems discriminatory, but it's not. Um, age, the reason why age is in every prognostic model is for a good reason, because we all lose organ reserve with age. And it's part of normal aging, normal senescence that we lose organ reserve. And that is why age does matter. I mean, you know, um, I don't have the same reserve I had when I was, even though I, I am fortunate to be in good health that I had 20 or 30 years ago, this is normal. And I think that this is um, important to keep in mind. Um, I mentioned age, uh, trajectory, I mentioned frailty is enormously important. Um, and those are factors uh, coming into the ICU for sure. In the ICU, um, I think that uh, there's a robust literature from, from many groups. Um, I like to highlight the French group, the Frog ICU group, our own recover groups contributed to this. The, those who've published a lot on chronic critical illness, um, Judy Nelson, Shannon Carson, um, Terry Huff, um, Chris Cox, there are many, uh, many leaders in this area, have really helped to highlight, um, and in this Provence study that was led by Terry Huff, that um, the longer you spend in the ICU, the more trouble you're in. So I think that's an important piece for your listeners, that no one no one is getting better weeks into the ICU. They might survive the unit, but what they, what is what they definitely are accruing over time is disability. They're accruing physical disability, you know, the neuropsychological disabilities that we've already talked about in this podcast. And there's a huge cost to this. And we know from all of these studies that I've mentioned that age, each decade of age, each week you spend in the unit, after about two weeks, um, you are going to have more and more disability. And it's and it's not just that. It's that at one year, you're, you're going to have an increase in your one-year mortality. So I really, one thing we were advocating for um, in the paper, and it's maybe, you know, it's controversial for some, 
but that it's literature-based, is that really after a couple of weeks, you know when someone's in trouble as an experienced intensivist. And I think it's really important to begin to have weekly discussions about goals of care and just educating patients and families about disability, about accruing mortality risk, um, and really about all of the challenges that people may face. That's not to say that people won't want to um, take that on, but I think it's very important to um, be very transparent about what's happening and that people have declared themselves as having very complex chronic critical illness. And there's a lot of morbidity and mortality and change in disposition that's associated with that and wanting to be really honest about um, living a life that looks like that. Um, and depending on the health care system you're in, um, you know, dealing with an enormous cost um, for the ICU care. This would not be the case in Canada, but in many countries. Um, and then being disabled and unable to work on the back end of that um, with an enormous medical debt. So I, I think just having an honest discussion about that um, is something that I think we need to pivot, you know, we need to have a bit of a, a change in focus, uh, even during the acute ICU stay. I agree. And perhaps uh, step number one in any new challenge or problem is awareness and understanding. But perhaps right after that, step number two for clinicians is to be familiar with the with the data and what really happens to patients and to share that in a way that families and patients can really understand what we're talking about weeks and weeks after I, ICU care. I think that's a, it's a great point. We talked a lot about patients, uh, Margaret, but there are also co-survivors. There are mm -hmm. family members uh, and caregivers that mm -hmm. also have significant impact uh, post-ICU. Could you just comment very briefly, and I know we're coming up on time, on some of the, the caregiver outcomes or family outcomes and then we yeah. can maybe talk about some interventions and a call to action. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, yeah, so I'm here representing both um, uh, my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Ellie Azoulay. And Ellie is um, really um, one of, if not the international expert in this area. So I would really um, want to couch my comments in that. We, we do some work too, and many others do, but Ellie's really the authority. Um, I think it's important, um, and I love that you use the term co-survivors, uh, Sergio. I think that's a really wonderful way to think about it. And I think um, it really is increasingly important to report and study dyads that we really acknowledge that patients have families like the pediatricians always have, but we're sort of a little bit behind in catching up in. Um, the families suffer a lot. Um, and I think, uh, again, just getting back to your earlier comment on COVID, having the families away from the bedside was devastating. And uh, Ellie and his uh, colleague in Paris, who's also a leader in this area, Nancy Kentish Barnes, have published a lot on COVID recently about the isolation, um, especially how devastating that has been at the end of life and the loss of sort of those final treasured 
uh, moments um, at the end of someone's life, a uh, family member. The families become mentally ill. And I think um, people find that hard to, people, I mean colleagues, find that really hard to accept. I, I would just say that from my own experience. I think historically we have really characterized families as difficult. Um, I'm sorry to use these words, but we've all heard them. Difficult, crazy, insane, you know, losing it. Um, they can't cope with it. They don't get it. Like very hurtful, pejorative, critical comments of the family. And I think in my own practice as an intensivist and as a teacher, um, when I'm at the bedside, I, I mean, I'm not here to be self-righteous. I'm really here to be teaching or messaging that we need to show more compassion for the families. <clears throat> Sorry, they're going through the worst experience of their life. Most would characterize it as such. And not everyone is built for this kind of unremitting, um, high-level stress and uncertainty. And, um, you know, they just can't sublimate it in the same way. that. And we just expect people to behave themselves, to, um, you know, just agree with what we're saying and be calm and accepting. I mean, this is just not realistic. And, and it's really not fair. And I really... I think we can, one thing I, I hope our community can work on is being less judgmental and more compassionate and definitely not endorsing of these sorts of pejorative, uh, really harsh and cruel things that we say about the families all the time when yep. you really listen for them. I think that's a great point. You've got to really stop that. And and one of the really things, yeah, one of the things, uh, Margaret, that I have worked on as as I've developed more more white hair and and reflected more on my career is when somebody talks to me or they sign out to me or the nurse talks about a difficult family, I would kind of rechallenge them and say maybe it's not a difficult family but a family in a difficult position, <laughs> or this is not a maybe it's not mm -hmm. a crazy family, it's a family in a crazy situation. Mm. Right. I mean, if you and, 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 and we all have, have seen this when we become the family or we become the patient, we're no different. Right. And it just has to do with with everything that that's going on. And like you said, uh, being more compassionate, and understanding, uh, I, I believe, is, is extremely important. So I think that's a very, very valuable point. And as we move towards the closing, like you said, this is a topic that we're just scratching the surface but there's a lot to learn, a lot to discuss. But what are some things, Margaret, that we could do today to move the yeah. needle for our ICU survivors and their families? Well, I think, um, uh, first of all, let me just say, Sergio, I really loved how you just said that you reframe this uh, discussion about the families with your colleagues. I think it's a, a very wonderful way of reframing that's not judgmental also of their behavior. I, I just wanted to say I loved how you just phrased that. That was just great. Yeah. Um, well, I think one way to begin is what you're doing and others are doing is to try to disseminate and educate and to demystify what's going on and to not make it seem like 
it's an indictment of our specialty because it isn't. It's we're learning. I really, you're right. This is, we have a lot to learn and we have a lot to learn about ways that we can mitigate all of this. So I think beginning with education and honesty and humility about what we're doing and, you know, really moving beyond saving a life, it, it has got to, um, we've got to, um, you know, examine this much more deeply and much more longitudinally and maybe multidimensionally. Maybe I would say that. I think outside of education, which is a great place to start, is um, I, I do think we need some way to create uh, pathways for these patients and families. And not every system is even amenable to that. A lot, depending on the healthcare system you work in, it is really so compartmentalized and um, politically so, um, structurally so, that it, it may be very difficult to create continuity and to create pathways for these patients. Um, in those systems in which it's possible, I think we really should move towards mandating that. This is possible in Canada. Um, I think it's possible in single payer systems because they, you know, um, I think that the health policy people can see the merits in this. And these won't necessarily be high cost uh, endeavors. Um, lots of people are working on interventional studies uh, within the ICU, the whole early mobility movement is trying to understand how that can you know, uh, mitigate disability, the results are a bit equivocal. Uh, the most recent important uh, teams, a study led by Carol Hodgson, um, unfortunately did not show a benefit. Um, there may be reasons uh, for that methodologically, but it is a bit of an equivocal literature, uh, getting back to what I was saying earlier on, that a lot of these injuries may not be wholly remediable or reversible. But understanding things already, um, you know, if you look to the A to, A to F bundle, which some people are critical of, but I think it's a reasonable um, touchstone and kind of reminder of things that really we should try to do. And we de-adopted in COVID and we've seen the deleterious consequences of that. Um, <clears throat> things as simple as also monitoring uh, or, or observing good glycemic control. We know, and this is work from Greet Vandenberg, not just her historic paper on tight glycemic control, but a JAMA publication looking at tight glycemic control in children um, and how that mitigates cognitive dysfunction. I think cog uh, tight glycemic control can really mitigate um, some of these uh, peripheral nerve and central nervous system issues. Hypoxemia, I mentioned in from Mona's work, um, uh, you know, uh, trying to mitigate delirium, um, again, an, a potent risk factor for cognitive dysfunction. Mood disorders, you know, not, not having people on polypharmacy, trying to have people awake so that we can reorient them and keep them connected in some way so they don't have these really injurious delusions um don't tie people down um you know i mean these are things we can do now um in the longer term um 
the post ICU, well, that's its own maybe chapter in discussion, but um, I think still working on understanding how much of the brain injury in the longer term can be mitigated, how much of the muscle injury can be mitigated. I think the benefit of the long-term follow-up right now is education, advocacy, continuity, help, helping in return to work, these sorts of things. And I think yeah. that one of the most uh, powerful um, aspects of suffering post-ICU, especially the psychological aspect of the cognitive, mm -hmm. might be the isolation that people who suffer it, where it's a patient or a family member feel in terms that this is only happening to them, which is some, a common theme in mental illness, right? And by mm. educating, explain that these things might, be, might, might, might occur, where to maybe seek some help, and realizing that this is, these are common events that happen to a lot of people and normalizing them as problems that need to be discussed, I think is also something where there's, from my perspective, plenty of opportunity in the ICU practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think one thing that we really can mitigate in the longer term are the mood disorders. And um, I would really emphasize that, that the patient's need us to advocate for access to mental health care after they leave the ICU. And you're right, normalize it so people don't feel so stigmatized and they'll be open to, <clears throat> sorry, receiving this um, and pursuing it. Totally agree. And it's a great point, Sergio. Thank you. So I would like to, to close uh, the podcast, Margaret, with uh, <laughs> questions that we ask our guests just to <laughs> tap into their wisdom that are not related to the topic that we just discussed. Would that be okay? Of course, sure, no problem. <laughs> so <laughs> the first question relates to books. And I just wanted to know, are there any books that have influenced you significantly or books that you have gifted often to other people? Oh. <clears throat> um, well, I don't know. It might... Um, it might sound um, a bit weird. I, I mean, maybe I'll I'll speak more personally. That I, I am somebody who um, tends to read a lot of fiction. Um, I read fiction that is about um, human relationships because I think a lot about relationships in the ICU as an intensivist, and we're exposed a lot to. Um, and exposed isn't the word I want to use. We are enormously privileged to be um, welcomed into the, or be allowed to um, have a look at someone's life um, at a moment when people are so exquisitely vulnerable. Yes. And so I read a lot about relationships and people and what people are going through. So I'll tell you one of my favorite authors in this way is Anne Patchett. She's an American author, and she writes a lot about complex people and complex relationships. And I, I, I guess I'm drawn to that because that's sort of the nature of the work that we do. Absolutely. Um, and, and so that's what I do. I, so that's what I read, actually. Love it. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a nonfiction reader, but I yeah. do read fiction because I do believe that in terms of enhancing our empathy, Great fiction mm -hmm. writers really understand human connection, human emotions, yeah. and human behavior. 
And I agree 100% with what you said, Margaret. Uh, to be at somebody's bedside when they're dying and their family is around them is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something that I, I think we should never lose sight of. And we should always look in awe because our, it's one of the things that we don't fully understand. But, but you're right. I mean, it's all about that very intense human connection at a very vulnerable point. And uh, we can make it a lot worse. We can make it a little bit better. And I think that we would all agree that we want to make it a little bit better. So mm-hmm. definitely we'll, we'll add some Ann Patchett books and I'll definitely look at, <laughs> look to read one of them, see how, how I enjoy them. I'll let you know. <laughs> the second question is, is there mm-hmm. something you believe that most people don't believe or don't behave like they believe can be in medicine or just in life in general? Wow. Um, well, I don't know. Um, that's a very, very deep and interesting question. <laughs> I'm not even sure how to answer it. Um, this is this is what I mean. I'm not sure this is like a perfect answer to this question, but something maybe I've learned over the years um, that some of the um, I, I believe that so many, that people really are capable of a lot of like really a lot of kindness Um, and that the kindness that you can see um, can be very unexpected and you see it in unexpected places and that you can learn a lot about kindness I think about this all the time when I'm in the unit I think a lot about kindness in ways that people don't really acknowledge very um, frequently so I look, I'm often so struck by this, like by we have these patient attendants here in our ICU. Or, you know, I look at the kindness and, and how they carefully move patients who are often in such bad shape, you know, with these injuries and they're cachectic, et cetera, and show so much compassion and kindness as the nurses are washing them. And people don't even acknowledge this, but, they, but they're caring. And I see so much kindness in the people who clean our ICU. No one, most people don't even know their names, but they know the families and they are there every day talking with the families and showing support. And I always, I'm always so struck by a lot of our nurses who, you know, will say to me, well, Marg, you know, I'm just going to give this person a spa night tonight. And they bring in, you know, toiletries (laughs) And they, you know, wash hair or put lotion on. And, and how patients in follow-up, um, I'm highlighting these groups because patients in follow-up tell me this, you know, how much it meant for someone to move them so gently when they were in so much pain or the cleaning staff became friends with their family member or the night that the nurse just spent the night, like they were kind of weaning, kind of stable more. And there weren't acute issues, but the nurse just kind of comforted them and and showed them so much kindness. I mean, uh, I think a lot about that. So I don't think that's a unique observation, but I think that 
so many people are capable of so much kindness that maybe what I think people don't understand, to get back to the original question, is the lifelong impact some of these extraordinarily kind of uh, actions, which some people might think are mundane, how profound the impact of these actions are on people in this most vulnerable state um, of critical illness and how meaningful they are. I, th I think that's the perfect answer, uh, Margaret, and uh, especially uh, the negativity that is fed to us through news cycles, through what's mm -hmm. out there, uh, I think makes us believe that there's so much wrong with the world, yet your observation that human beings not only have an enormous capacity for being kind, but we can find it right around the corner where we work, right? We just have exactly. to look at, uh, at look for it and find it. And uh, the impact that a simple act of kindness can have on another human being is enormous. And, uh, and we should, I, I think, not only value and embrace that, but look for it and, and try to replicate that. So I think that's the perfect answer, the perfect place to stop. I want to thank you for all your amazing work, for a beautiful review article that we'll link uh, with other, um, obviously, literature that you mentioned. And more importantly, thank you for, for giving us your time today, Margaret. I, I hope to have you back. And there's a lot of topics that we can dive deeper and talk about as, as we learn. And once again, thank you so much. Thanks uh, so much. for Really nice to meet you, Sergio. Nice to chat with you. Thanks for your comments. And, uh, you know, thanks for the opportunity to uh, uh, share some of these uh, thoughts with your uh, listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.